0: Sports tournaments have been a successful tool in gathering people together for a t- towards a common goal. They're decent fundraisers most of the time because they offer the participants something that they desire deep down. One more shot at glory for some people. There's a spirit of competition of wanting to beat the old guard or to put the young pups in their place. For the rest of us, It's a chance to meet up with old classmates, to relive the glory days, and to confront the harsh reality that even though the mind hasn't seemed to age too much since high school or college or whatever you're alumning from, the body most definitely has. I participated in two AFLIBUS, now FLBC, alumni tournaments. The sport was basketball, not my favorite nor my best. I heard our class was going to be short players, so since I was living in the town, I figured, sure, why not, I'll go ahead and join the team. I'll help the team out, or so I thought. I had one goal. My one goal was this, to not be the player that would make the rest of the team groan when I showed up. In one of our games, I was guarding a high school freshman. He's about a head shorter than me. This is an alumni tournament. He shouldn't have even been there. He hasn't gone to the school yet. He's a high school student. I was his youth leader, but here he was, this short freshman. I'm 24 years old. He's 14 years old. I have the advantage, right? One would think. But he kept draining threes on me. And there was nothing that I could do to stop him. I came to the harsh realization that day that the team was better off without me. I was that player. I am that player. It's not a fun thought to think that you are the worst player on the team, and though no one said it out loud, no one wanted to, it was pretty obvious. I was getting schooled by a freshman, and so I found a better way to contribute to our class's success by not participating. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. Sometimes the best thing that you can do for the team is to cut someone, and so that's what happened. Sometimes there is blessing in subtraction. Now that's a lighthearted example, I'll admit, but it's true. There is a blessing in subtraction at times. Our text this morning seems to be full of tragedy. There doesn't seem to be any silver linings here in the text. It's a dark time for Israel, a time of judgment and a time of death. And yet even in the midst of this tragedy, we see the Lord's hand at work. The Lord is doing another blessing through subtraction here for his people. And though Israel isn't too happy about it in the long run, it would turn out to be for the best. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to First Chronicles chapter 10. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. First Chronicles chapter 10, verses 1 through 14. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you are able to. First Chronicles chapter 10. Beginning at verse 1 and reading in Jesus' name. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closely pursued Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle became heavy against Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, and all those of his house died together. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they stripped him and took his head and his armor, and sent messengers around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people." They put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the house of Dagon. When all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh. And they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his trespasses, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. Your word is hard, it's difficult, but Lord, it is true. And we pray today that you would sanctify us in your truth here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The chapter here begins with the Philistines fighting against Israel. Again, it's a common occurrence. It happens frequently throughout the history of Philistia and Israel. There was constant strife. The Philistines, if you remember, had been routed by the Israelites before and utterly humiliated too. Not by a high school freshman, but by a little boy. They sent out their greatest warrior to taunt the Israelite army. And no one dared approach Goliath. No one wanted to take him on, except for this young boy. A young boy whom the giant laughed at, and had he a conscience, would have felt badly fighting against. He should have backed down. It was a lose-lose situation. If he wins, he beats a little boy. If he loses, well, he lost his head. He loses to a little boy. The Lord delivered David from the hand of his enemy. And Goliath was slain by this little shepherd boy. And the Philistines fled, utterly humiliated by the Israelites. And now they have their chance to get revenge. And so they pursue Saul and his sons. They pursue the king. Even though they might not have been Israel's most valiant warriors or the best warriors that Israel had, they're their leaders, the king and his sons, the princes. And so the conflict rages on. And Saul is struck by an arrow and he is gravely wounded. The Philistines weren't known for their hospitality when it came to capturing their enemies. The Israelites would have remembered how Samson was treated at the hand of these same Philistines. His eyes were plucked out and he was paraded around as party entertainment. Look at this Israelite who we captured, this strong man who slain thousands of us. Now look at him. Ha ha. King Saul fears what would become of him if he were to fall into the hands of these Philistines. So he calls out to his armor-bearer to do his king one last service, end my life with dignity, put me out of my misery, and spare me from the savagery of these enemies. And His armor-bearer wouldn't do it. Were you in his situation, would you have done it? Would you have killed your own king, the Lord's anointed How could he raise his hand against the Lord's anointed and not be guilty? And not deal with the guilty conscience for the rest of his days? So Saul takes his own life and the armor bearer follows suit and does the same. Saul's three sons are also killed in the battle. Suddenly, the Israelites are without a leader. Their king was dead. His sons were dead. It's a decisive blow. It's demoralizing for them. Who would lead them to victory? Who would they follow? Who could they trust? Who would deliver them from the Philistines? Who would keep them safe? Who would protect their families? They did the only thing they knew what to do, which every brave warrior does in the same situation, right? They run. They left their cities behind. They ran for their lives. They fled desperately, trying to escape the revenge of the Philistines. And so the Philistines waltzed on into their cities and claimed them as their new homes. And the next day, as the Philistines are dealing with the carnage of human flesh left behind from the battle, they find Saul and his sons. And these hospitable and considerate foes, note the sarcasm there in those words, treat the dead shamefully to gloat over them even more of their victory. King Saul is stripped of his royal robes, his armor is taken, and his severed head is mounted in the temple where they did their worship. In the temple for all of the Philistines to know that Dagon, this great God, his power, by his power, has defeated Israel, has defeated Israel's king and has also defeated Israel's God. Or so the Philistines would have us believe. It was a bleak time for Israel. It wasn't a battle to be remembered and celebrated It was utter defeat. How could the Lord do this? How could the Lord allow these pagans to dishonor their king in such a horrible way? Why would the Lord not even fight for his own honor here? How could he tolerate this flaunting of the Philistines? How could he tolerate this blasphemy? But God doesn't tolerate sin. And that's exactly why this event happens And that's exactly why this event is recorded for us. Though it isn't a comforting message, the answer is given in verse 13 and 14. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. Therefore the Lord killed him. The sobering truth is though Saul resorted to taking his own life, Saul had lived the days that the Lord had allotted for him. As the Chronicle writes, he killed him, the Lord killed him. We like to think that we hold the power of life and death in our own hands, but that's simply not true. We can't give life. And we like to think that we can take life. The reality is God is the one who has numbered all of our days. Another uncomfortable truth is Saul dying for his trespass here. Saul is dying for his own sin. How could the Lord allow the Philistines to do this? It's because he is dealing with Israel's sin. It's because he is dealing with Saul's sin here that needed to be dealt with. It's easy for us to be ignorant of our own sin at times. Say, God, but I am so much better than, insert anyone else here. How can you let them triumph over me? Why am I receiving this treatment? The Lord simply says here, it's because of Saul's sin. I don't mean to sound callous here, but though death can certainly be tragic, there isn't really such a thing as an innocent death. Because the wages of sin for each person Are the same. The wages of sin is death. As much as we don't want to recognize it, as much as we don't want to realize that and confess that it's true, death may come today, it may come tomorrow, it may come 50 years down the road, but it's to be expected. It's to be expected because we are sinners and we live in a sinful world. Each one of us is a sinner and so every one of us deserves then to die it's something that we ought to be prepared for but since it doesn't give us warm fuzzies thinking about it we keep kicking it down the road thinking somehow some way we may finally be able to avoid kicking the bucket altogether but scripture is clear the soul who sins will die and the wages of sin is death our days are numbered and we don't deserve to live another second A couple of Saul's sins are listed for us in verse 13. He did not keep the word of the Lord, but he sought counsel from a medium. A medium was a person who sought to communicate with the spirits of the dead. A witch, someone who did witchcraft, someone who tried to contact the dead, and someone who would not inquire of the Lord. It was strictly forbidden here in Israel. In fact, the mediums had been put to death. All of them were to be put to death. And yet, Saul, the very king of this land, goes to consult a medium. Someone who shouldn't have been around. Something he never should have done. And yet he consults this medium rather than the Lord. And therefore, the Lord killed him. You can't really get much more black and white than that. Saul had started his reign serving the Lord, but he had eventually departed He went astray, and the spirit of the Lord left him. When he sought advice and counsel, he didn't go to the Lord as he had done before, but instead he consults a witch to conjure up the spirit of the dead, which again is strictly forbidden. He consults this witch to say, I want to talk to Samuel again. He is the Lord's servant. Bring up his soul so I can talk to him. But Samuel is dead. Saul is guilty, and he deserves to die. Saul is also leading the Israelites, astray here. The Israelites were looking to Saul for their victory. They're looking to Saul for their deliverance. They're looking to Saul for the things that ultimately Saul has when they should have trusted in the Lord. And when the Lord took Saul's life, and the Israelites fled because they had nothing else in which to trust. When the things that we look to for comfort, the things we look to for deliverance, for salvation, For every good gift are stripped away from us. What are we left with? For many people, it's a sense of hopelessness. It's a realization that there is nothing worth living for, that there is no hope, that there is no better tomorrow, there is no reason for living. The good diagnostic question for us to ask is simply this, what is it that I can't live without? What is it that I cannot live without? And as you ponder that question, I'm sure a lot of good things are coming into your mind. And these things are good. A lot of good gifts that God has graciously given to you and has blessed you with. But do we value these gifts more so than the God who has given them to us? Or put another way, as Paul writes it, do we worship creation more than the Creator? What is it that we cannot live without? Is it the Lord? Or is it a number of these other things? Is the Lord our provider, or do we provide for our own lives? One of the things that Saul was guilty of, again, was consulting the dead. Now, you may never have paid someone to communicate with the dead on your behalf or tried to conjure up the soul of someone who has departed, but have you ever tried consulting the dead before? Have you ever tried to communicate with a loved one who has passed away, finding some sort of comfort in this, that this loved one is still somehow communicating back with you, a family member or a friend, Now grief is a force to be reckoned with but when we try to work our way through grief or even through life trying to connect with the one who has passed away trying to find our comfort and our solace in this person who has since passed away and has left us behind we're no different than Saul we're finding comfort in the soul of one who has passed away we are trying to communicate with the dead when the reality is the Lord is the one who comforts the Lord is the one who talks to us, who answers us. The Lord is the one who is with us always. When we should be going to the Lord for comfort, when we should be trusting in the Lord, we place our trust in men, a place that it's only going to lead to our disappointment, men who cannot save us, men who cannot comfort us, men who cannot deliver us from the Philistines or deliver us from anything else, men who cannot answer, men who cannot deliver. It's not a comforting thought, but we need to ask the question, what gods do we trust in? The Israelites found themselves stripped of their gods. When Saul abandoned the Lord, all he was left with was grasping at straws. The only hope that he had was ending his life before the Philistines came and took over. But where do you run when there's no more places to run? Where do you go when you are confronted with a sense of hopelessness? This text is full of tragic and hard and uncomfortable truth that we don't want to recognize. But here in this text, the Lord is still at work. And he leaves us with a glimmer of hope at the end of verse 14. Therefore he killed Saul and he turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. The Lord removed Saul from being king and in his place established David as king. God's judgment on King Saul, even though it came through the hand of the Philistines, these wicked people, and even though it came through King Saul's own hands, was preparing God's people for renewal and deliverance. The Lord was raising up a new king to replace King Saul, a king whom the Bible describes as being a man after God's own heart. A king who would lead his people back to himself, back to the Lord. And David would be a king who led Israel to fear and love the Lord. What God is doing here, even in the midst of this tragic justice, is another blessing in subtraction. There's another much greater blessing in subtraction, though, that we should find our hope in. David was certainly a king who the Lord was raising up, but the Lord has raised up another king. Another king who would deliver his people, another king who can deliver his people by his own hand. A king was born who would be the prince of peace, a king to establish his kingdom and who would rule with justice and mercy, who would not turn his back on his people and would follow the God of our God fully, his own father. A king to right all wrongs. That king is Jesus. And even when his disciples tried to prevent him from taking the path that would surely result in his death, Jesus wouldn't turn away. He assured them all, No, no, no. It is better for you. It is better for you if I go than if I stay here. How could it possibly be better? What could possibly be better than being with Jesus? It's better. For the disciples, it's better for us because this king, Jesus in his death, would receive God's judgment on our behalf and all of it. And Jesus died in our stead and rose again that we may have life, that we might have abundant life, another blessing in subtraction. It looked as though God is taking away his one and only son from his disciples. How could he do it? And So that he could give abundant life. That he would be able to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. That sin would be paid for. As uncomfortable as it is, we have to recognize that we too are sinners. That we have sinned against God in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, and even in our desires. And so we deserve God's wrath. We deserve death. It's what we've all deserved. We don't deserve to take another breath And that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us one bit because we know that we live in a sinful and fallen world. We know what the penalty for sin is. But what should surprise us is God's grace. What should surprise us is God's love for us and sending his one and only son in our place. What should surprise us is Christ who knew no sin becoming sin on our behalf So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What shouldn't surprise us is death. We have sinned. We deserve to die. And one day, unless the Lord returns first, we will die. And if we continue in our sin against God, if we refuse to keep his word and to trust in him, we will be separated from God for all eternity. And the same thing that happened to Saul will happen to us. Eternal separation from God. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's what we deserve. It's what we, by our own actions, deserve daily. But again, what should surprise us, though, is the greatest blessing in subtraction. Eternal life from Christ's death and resurrection. What should surprise us is this, that for those who desire to be forgiven, who trust in Christ and who confess their sins for the sake of Jesus Christ, because he was crucified and risen again, then God, according to his promise, forgives you of all of your sins. And by the authority of God's word and by the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, I declare to you that through his grace, God has forgiven all your sins. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. This is what should surprise us. The fact that even though we continue to rebel and sin, that God's grace is still there for us. That as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. That God's judgment in its fullness was poured out on Christ in our stead. So God now renews and restores us and gives to us new life. We don't deserve it. But God in Christ graciously gives it to us. He gives new life. Amen and praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for your word and for its truth. God, we thank you for the number of blessings and subtraction that you continue to do in our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you as our God. To find our every good gift is coming from you. Lord, to place all of our trust in you and in you alone, to have no other gods before you. Lord, as we continue to stumble through this life and continue to sin, we pray that you would continue to call us back to yourself. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die in our place and to give us forgiveness, to freely give that gift to all who believe, to all who confess their sins. Father, as we go from this place today, we pray that you would send us forth with your blessing, with your presence, and with the assurance that we no longer carry our sins or our burdens upon us, but that we are free and that you have forgiven us, that you and you alone have given us new life, abundant life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.